This episode is sponsored by IHG Hotels and Resorts, home to some of the world's most well-loved hotel brands in more than 100 countries. Its commitment to protect the planet and care for communities comes naturally to a business that stands for providing true hospitality for everyone. Visit ihgplc.com for more information. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, a new sustainability institute aims to accelerate corporate change. Project Drawdown launches a lab. What it takes for a multinational to become a B Corp. And are lawyers and accountants doing enough on climate change? Oh, and it's our birthday, this week on 350. It's October 16th, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hello, Joel. Is it a birthday or is it an anniversary? Oh, I don't know. It's five years to the day that this podcast was born. So this podcast was born in just the weeks in the run-up to COP21 that led to the uh, now infamous Paris Agreement in partnership with Lauren Hepler, who was an associate editor, later senior editor here at GreenBiz before moving on to do bigger and better things. And uh, you stepped in, much to my delight. And, uh, <laughs> you know, okay. the rest is uh, podcast history. <laughs> I, I'd like to just play a little clip. Um, it's it's probably less than a minute long uh, from the opening of the very first show. It, it just starts to get uh, a little of a flavor of, of what we're trying to do here. And I think, I guess, one of the takeaways for me is that we've been pretty true to that over the past five years. It hasn't changed much. And, and hopefully, um, as a result, we've become uh, something that people rely on. But it's just a little taste of how we began. It's Friday, October 16th, 2015. Welcome to episode one of Green Biz 350, our premier edition of this weekly podcast. Each week, we're going to be bringing you the news and insight from the world of sustainable business, including various members of the GreenBiz team. Joining me here today in the GreenBiz studio is Associate Editor Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Joel. How's it going? It's going good. How do you feel about this whole new endeavor here? It's very exciting. Yeah. I'm happy to have a new medium for all the interviews we run around doing like crazy. Yeah, new to us at least. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, there's no cop this year, but it sure is busy in the sustainability world. I mean, so many announcements this week. What's going on, Joel? Uh, October 14th. Uh, for some reason, Wednesday this week, October 14th, was uh, a big launch day. Uh, and we've got three pieces that we'll be uh, uh, running in the next few minutes. Um, one of those was uh, the launch of Drawdown Labs from our friends at Project Drawdown. Uh, another was a report um, from Form for the Future on uh, the future of sustainable business given this moment. And the third is the launch of the Sustainability Institute by the global consultancy ERM. Um, we have conversations with the founders of all of those uh, coming right up. But before that, let's do the Week in Review. So, Joel, there's a new phrase you have to uh, put into your vocabulary. Okay. Lithium Valley. Lith Katie Fernbacher, our transportation guru, wrote this week about a plan for the Salton Sea. And uh, in case you haven't heard of it, it's a lake that's outside of Joshua Tree National Park. And one of the things in that lake is dun 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 lithium. One of the uh, one of the critical ingredients for, of course, lithium-ion batteries. So there is a plan that has been proposed. Uh, from an, in a report that was put out by New Energy Nexus this week, or this month rather, that is focusing on the potential for developing a lithium hub, if you will, in the lithium 
valley that could be near the Salton Sea. Pretty cool idea, especially uh, considering like the need for jobs right now. The need for jobs and also the need for lithium. I think the context here is that battery makers are facing a shortage of lithium and and the ongoing financial problems uh, given the COVID-19 pandemic has been exacerbating that. And they're expecting by the mid-2020s that um, a, a serious a shortage of of lith- what are called lithium specialty chemicals. So, turns out there's a uh, a cache of lithium, uh, you know, in the brine that's been left by this uh, ancient sea, this uh, Salton Sea, it's a 350 square mile lake that's that's shrinking in and of itself, uh, a potential ecological disaster. It's in uh, southeastern California, so almost uh, between the coast and Arizona and Mexico down there. Um, and it's also a very uh, economically depressed region uh, that uh, so there's an opportunity here to to create uh, uh, some a new supply chain. And there's a report that was launched that Katie wrote about from a new Energy Nexus a nonprofit accelerator group uh, about the potential here to generate billions of dollars and thousands of jobs in this area, which is called the Imperial Valley. Um, so this is a really exciting area, and, and it's not just a science experiment that they know how to do this, and it's really not a matter of whether it can be done. It's simply putting in the infrastructure and investing the, the, the dollars to do this. And, and one component of that is that uh, last month, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill that instructs the California Energy Commission to basically explore how to expand this emerging lithium recovery industry. So um, exciting uh, domestic source of lithium that could uh, bring jobs to an impoverished area. What's not to like? Yeah, and it could it reduce our dependence on this supply from Asia, from Chile and Australia and Argentina. So I think that's another positive. Wouldn't be leaving us beholden. Yeah. Well, speaking of things that have buzz, let's talk about bees and pollinators and grocery stores. Uh, this is a story that came from from three people in the uh, socially responsible investment arena from Mercy Investment Services, Trillium Asset Management, and the nonprofit uh, advocacy group As You Sow. Talking, uh, again, another report looking at how grocery chains are leaning on their suppliers to uh, reduce the uh, amount of, t- of pesticides that are killing pollinators, notably bees. And they issued a new bee-friendly re- retailer scorecard. That's pretty interesting. And we linked to that. Um, the highest grade that any of the retailers got was a C. That was uh, two companies, Whole Foods and Costco, both got the top grade of C. And then uh Two chains, Giant Eagle and Rite Aid, got a D plus, and after that, it's all D's and a whole bunch of F's. So lots of room to grow here on uh, on how uh, retailers are are helping uh, avoid this uh, this pollinator collapse. Yeah, and given the position of the authors in the investment world, what they're calling for is disclosure, right? So they want these groceries stores and and chains and so forth to lean on their food companies, on their suppliers, to be more diligent about talking about the pesticides they're using, the, the very, you know, the very specific use of these chemicals. And, and, you know, we've seen a lot of work on the personal care side with the chemicals and, and taking the toxics out and, and, and Target and Walmart and, and others have done a really terrific job at trying to, to develop some standards around that. This is a push for the same thing in terms of food. And so there's a lot of that. There's a disclosure is a big part of the story and the suggestions they make, but also the um, increase of organic and expansion of organic agriculture, right? So it points back to this regenerative agriculture movement and sort of the getting back to the land and looking at, at habits and techniques that don't rely so much on these chemicals. And it's a, it's a great piece. I think uh, it's one of those like wake-up call pieces that sort of sets the stage and, and now it's kind of up to us to to do the follow-up. And it's kind of a classic uh, example of, of how uh, advocacy and activist organizations um, uh, can can affect change because if you can't 
change the policies and practices of the individual growers uh, all over the the world, particularly in the in the U.S. I think that this is focusing on then focus on the brands that we all know and and patronize, and in this case, uh, grocery retailers, um, and and then encourage or press them to push this uh, up the supply chain to their distributors and their distributors. Uh, uh, sources and ultimately to the growers. Um, this we've seen this over and over again. If you can't uh, stop individual foresters, for example, from cutting down the old growth uh, trees, uh, let's go to the paper companies um, and the brands and the companies that sell those, the Office Depots and Staples and like that. And so this is a, a great you know go to the brands and let the let the people really press them. And yeah, I think I like I like where that's. Uh, interesting dynamic. Yeah. And and I wanted to say one more thing about Costco, because it, based on what you just said, that makes me think about all the restaurants and, uh, you know, cafes and so forth that buy from Costco, that it's a huge supplier for those kinds of organizations. So at, when, as they look to recover, that could be a point of differentiation um, for Costco as, as continuing to be their supplier. And for those organizations, you know, being able to talk about uh, you know, where their food comes from. So it's all a circle. Yeah. And will pollinator friendly uh, cooking be part of menus now and one of the offerings and, and differentiators, as you say, that uh, the restaurants use. So interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. So speaking of advocacy, Joel, you had a, an essay this week that looked at how lawyers are uh, are acting on climate change? Are they hurting it? Are they, they helping the crisis? Are they making it worse? And you wrote about a new report from the Law Students for Climate Accountability, which looks at the top 100 law firms in the United States and, and basically found that they provide far more support to clients driving the climate crisis than clients addressing it. So it was kind of one of those, whoa, you know, they of, of the, of the uh, cases that they litigated, 286 of them exacerbated climate change versus three cases that mitigated it. So the, the scorecard that they came up with was kind of kind of damning as far as the, the legal profession. I'm just kind of curious, you know, what your experience has been. Have you have you really looked at this before? I, I was surprised that I hadn't heard more about it to this point. Yeah, this is kind of a new phenomenon, Heather. I mean, I, in the past, we've written about the greening of law firms, which is, you know, around paper use and all the energy and things that every business is or should be doing. But this is about the actual work that they do. And, and what's interesting about this, it's, a, I think, a fascinating dynamic because on the one hand, you've got lawyers doing what lawyers do, which is represent clients and whatever those clients need. And, and a lot of those clients are big fossil fuel companies that are being sued or doing mergers and acquisitions or any number of things for which one needs a lawyer when there always seems to be a growing number of things. The other hand, you have these uh, this next generation of lawyers, these law students and, and early career professionals who who want to work for uh, law firms that are uh, you know part of the solution and 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 as they see it, or at least not aiding and abetting uh, fossil fuel companies. And so, uh, you know, on the one hand, you've got law firms doing what comes naturally and what they're supposed to be doing. On the other hand, you've got their uh, their their supply chain of 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 for future employees uh, saying you know we're not sure we want to work for a firm that does that kind of work so uh, it's going to be really interesting you know, this is another uh, I guess another report card um, where uh, this this group called Law Students for Climate and Accountability uh, ranked these uh, there's a annual list called the Vault Law 100 it's the largest firms in the U S and they rank them again A through F uh, Four of the hundred got a an A, twenty six got an F, and and everybody else was sort of in the middle. This report was intended to provide law students and young lawyers, and this is a quote, with a resource when deciding on their current and future employment. So unabashedly saying, we don't want to work for some of you, and I think it will be really interesting to see 
whether the pragmatism of finding a job and getting on a partner track that lawyers uh, typically strive for versus the uh, values of of the uh, millennials and and Gen Zers who you know from whom money may not be the biggest thing and values and impact may uh, rank up there as high or even higher in some cases, where that lands. Yeah, it wasn't just lawyers either, right? There, you, you don't give have nearly as much about these other professions, but there were a couple of other services professions that you mentioned here in this essay, including health insurers, right? So, how, how, where is there, where are their funds invested? Yeah, there's that, <laughs> and, and accountants are, are you know trying to bone up on these things. So it's interesting that you know a lot of the financial what we've known about banks for a long time they've been under pressure. Insurance companies, to the extent that they're um, uh, not charging enough premiums for, for climate risk uh, uh, companies or, or infrastructure, uh, but also looking at uh, where are um, institutions and these companies investing their money. And um, so there's, there's, a, there's a new pressure to look at the investments of, of financial institutions against the backdrop of, of the material risk posed by climate change. And 55 financial institutions are backing a new certification and have already committed to setting science-based targets for, uh, for their investments. And um, it'll, again, another interesting thing to see whether business as usual, which is just getting a, a reasonably high and reasonably safe rate of return on an investment bumps up against the social and environmental values that a growing number of of people uh, are holding. And uh, where it lands, nobody knows. B-Lab was founded in 2006 by three former university classmates who were concerned about the structural challenges of creating, growing, and maintaining a responsible business. Today, more than 3,500 companies around the world hold a certified B Corporation certification. While some large multinationals, including Danone and Natura, have embraced the certifications, others have been slower to move. That was a catalyst for the new B Movement Builders Initiative launched in September. The founders include those two companies, along with vegetable processor Banduel, steelmaker Gerdau, flavors and fragrance company Givardon, and retailer Magalu. Joining me to discuss the new initiative is Marcelo Bihar, Vice President for Sustainability and Group Affairs for Natura & Co. Hello, Marcelo. Hello, Heather. How are you? Great. Now, if I remember correctly, Natura was the first publicly traded company to become a certified B Corporation back in 2014. How has that status impacted its sustainability strategy and progress? And what has been the biggest benefit? Yes, that's correct. So Natura has a long track record on doing things for the environment, doing things for society. So just to talk a little bit about ourselves, Natura is a Brazilian-based company who was founded 50 years ago in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and it has a history and a path on sustainability. So it was the first Brazilian company to use refile packaging in the 80s, and it was totally transformed in the 90s when it started to use the bio, Brazilian biodiversity as the base of launching of, of product launch. So Natura was the first company to really use in an industrial scale uh, the, the goods and the, the materials that were coming from communities within fair trade paying benefits, using all the knowledge that the Convention of Biodiversity uh, taught us uh, how to do. So it was really a company that started a journey in sustainability decades ago. When we became B in 2014, I think together with GRI and other metrics, we were able not only to compare what we were doing, but to compare what we were doing with others and how we were comparing to other companies who were similar or who are trying to do things on the different social and environmental um, spheres. Uh, what we saw about Becoming B was that it helped our strategy, uh, not only to be more accurate on how we were evolving, 
but to set some, some targets and some standards that help the whole organization. So I think Natura is probably nowadays one of the few organizations where its executives, they have even their bonuses tied to sustainability achievements and to sustainability targets like carbon emissions. Um, I think that process really benefited from becoming B when the company changed its legal status uh, to say that its purpose was not only to create value for its shareholders, but also to create value on environmental and social terms. So what was the motivation behind the creation of B Movement Builders and why did Natura become involved? So I think two things happened at the same time. Movement Builders was an initiative that happened this year. And this year, we also launched our vision for the next 10 years. On our vision for the next 10 years that we called Commitment to Life, we have three pillars. The first one, we are aiming to address the climate crisis and to protect the Amazon. On the second one, we are stating that we'll defend human rights and that we'll be more human kind and kind to humans. On the third one, we will, we are saying and we are placing metrics in order to embrace circularity and to get more regenerative solutions for our products. That is a path that we cannot do by our own. We need others on that journey. So in order to bring others and to be more connected to what's new, to what's uh, coming on, uh, not only for our industry, but on the whole climate discussion as a whole, movement builders came. And movement builders allow us not only to be mentors on the process of how to become a big company, but how can we connect those targets with other industries, with other sectors. So I think the alignment with movement builders and our vision for 2030 was immediate. And I think after having a few sessions with different companies who are also trying to become B and who are part of movement builders, we saw that this really enhanced our capabilities of fostering collective efforts to achieve our goals. Right. So you are one of the mentors. So what does that entail? So our role as a mentor is to really help those companies uh, to, to follow the same path, uh, to better uh, understand how the impact assessment with its targets, with its settings, how does that work? How can we combine corporate strategy with, uh, tool ma uh, with management tools for the social and the environmental aspect? And how, can, how we crafted our own uh, measurements, not only for carbon emissions, waste, water, but mostly diversity um, and all the human aspect that requires a company to become B. So what do you gain from it? I think what we gain is uh, a bigger network of companies that are committed to the same standards that allow us to think that what we are proposing to ourselves is doable. Because everything that concerns to ESG or sustainability or that look to uh, collective efforts that will be achieved by many, uh, it's hard nowadays to, to engage on initiatives that we are uh, certain that they can be verified, that there is a third part who takes a look at it and see how you and others are performing. So what we gain is a community. It's a community of pairs, it's a community of companies who are on the same path, who are open to show their data, who are open to compare uh, their instruments of management, and most of all, who are willing to collaborate towards uh, a greener and cleaner economy. As our CEO, Roberto Marquez, always stand, there is no plan B, there is only a plan A. If we don't collaborate with pairs, if we don't really build a community of business who are interested in changing things, uh, in making the Paris Agreement doable, uh, in changing the way that we structure ourselves to tackle inequality, I think we cannot only trust on governments to do that. It's a community that it takes, or as you say in English, it takes a village, right? So mm -hmm. that's our village. That's what we're creating. 
So what will success look like? Is the goal to get more publicly traded multinationals <laughs> involved in, in the B lab and the B in the B movement, if you will? Yes. So I think um, when we see what happened with um, uh, ESG, I think it's a very good parallel. So I think for investors, the G aspect of ESG, so the governance aspect, was always very clear and very important to be compared. And investors, they can look at how a company governance is set in place and they can make math out of it and compare how sustainable that company is and how, how clear their, their practices are. Uh, the same should happen to uh, the, the, the two other aspects, so to environment and to social. So, but it's hard nowadays for everyone, for different stakeholders. And now I'm not only referring to investors, but for consumers, for employees as well to choose a company considering uh, how they're performing in terms of environmental and social measures. What success looks like, I think it would be for companies to really get in a place at one day, someone will compare not only two companies, but two products produced by those companies and get all the data of what is invisible, what is behind that product, what is what has taken to get there, how much carbon it was emitted to be produced, how much water was, was used, uh, how much wealth was shared. And in order to have this society where consumers can have not only more clarity, but consumers can really engage with uh, changing uh, aspects of production, we need a, a larger community. So it's not about having a uh, uh, few hundred of public traded companies, but to become a trend of having open uh, your, not only your data, but your practices in a way that a third part can verify and can provide visibility to different stakeholders. Well, thank you for that update and good luck on your mission. Thank you so much, Heather. The mission is ours for everyone to take. You just heard from Marcelo Bihar, Vice President for Sustainability and Group Affairs for Natura & Co. This week, the global consultancy ERM launched the Sustainability Institute, created to define, accelerate, and scale sustainability performance, as the company put it. Joining me now to talk about it are Karen James, ERM's Group Chief Executive, and Mark Lee, head of the new Sustainability Institute. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much. Thanks, Joel. Uh, so to provide a little bit of context, the name sustainability comes from the consultancy and think tank by that name, which ERM acquired in 2019 and of which Mark had been executive director. So uh, Kieran, let me start with you. Why another institute? Yeah, no, thanks, Joel. Great question. And look, I, I think the, the primary issue here for us is that we wanted to uh, create something that really uh, leveraged the thought leadership heritage uh, that sustainability brought with it when we acquired the business in 2019. Um, they had a reputation for being a market leading think tank, um, you know, running incredibly strong corporate member networks and um, being very respected for their advisory services. And we wanted to leverage that, but also create something that was slightly separate from the main business of ERM um, to really give it that thought leadership um, sort of uh, cachet, if you like. Yeah. And Mark, why now? I mean, what, there's a lot going on, obviously, but was this, this moment represents something that made it ripe for this institute to begin its life? I think a couple things, Joel, that, um, you know, ERM's coming up on its 50th birthday, and that's maybe just interesting. But we've been talking about how we're also 50 years on from Milton Friedman and the infamous essay on the social responsibility of business. And lots has changed in those 50 years. But as we look at the 10 years now ahead and the so-called decade of action that we're all entering into, there is more to do in sustainability terms and in corporate sustainability terms then we yet know how to do. And so the Institute isn't going to solve all that, but by combining what sustainability brought from its history with the broader expertise of ERM, we sure hope we can make a significant contribution. So how? 
What's the actual plan to make that kind of contribution? So maybe, um, Joel, if I sort of tackle this at a high level and then Mark might provide some specifics, but I think sort of at its most fundamental, I think what we're trying to do here is to create a thought leadership hub which provides actionable insights. And the emphasis here, I think, is on the word actionable. Um, you know, this is not a, uh, you know, a, a sort of a think tank that is, is operating at a sort of very, very strategic level. We're really trying to draw on the technical expertise, the networks, uh, the capability that we have within the organization and through the partnerships that we have with our clients and other organizations to really create insights for business that are practical, pragmatic, can be implemented and to help them uh, what we call operationalize sustainability. So, Karen, how does this fit into the larger ERM strategy? You've been a little bit on an acquisition binge the last couple of years, um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and this is actually a spin out, but, but how does this fit in with the direction that you see the company going? Yeah, look, I think it goes back a little bit to what Mark was, was just mentioning, Joel, which is there is so much to be done and there is so little time. I mean, this is absolutely the decade of action and business really needs to lead the way in that. Um, ERM has a very clearly defined purpose uh, around shaping um, a more sustainable future with the world's leading organizations. And we want to be able to take a leadership role in helping business make the transitions that they are needing to make from a low carbon perspective, from a human focused, more equal, less wasteful society and, and economy. And we feel that in order to do that, um, leadership requires the ability to articulate compelling reasons to change and to illustrate a realistic path for people to do that. And therefore, we feel it's time for us to amplify our voice in this conversation because we believe we have a huge amount to offer and a huge amount of experience and expertise to offer to our clients and others as we try and tackle these problems. And so Mark, one of the things that's been going on the last couple of years is, is the S in ESG has been mm -hmm. on, a, on a rise and particularly this year, social justice issues have, have really risen to the top. How do you see the Institute taking that on? Yeah, we um, will work across the full sustainability agenda. There's no question. And in the same way that we now talk about ES and G together, of course, our founders, John Elkington and Julia Hale, really helped bring that concept of the triple bottom line. So that's been part of our thinking from the get-go is that this is about where the financial or economic and the social and the environmental connect. But as we've looked at 2020, you know, we started with the concerns about a pandemic, but the degree to which they are a huge economic dislocation. And then I think the way they gave greater impetus to the social unrest that's come through, uh, it's underscored that there's not gonna be a just transition in terms of climate, unless it is also just in terms of access and equity and participation. I think ERM's got a strong history actually on the social side. Some of that's been rooted in the traditional health and safety, but there, there is inherent to that just a deep caring for people element. And we want to be able to stitch those things together. Uh, this should partly be about reaching new audiences and connecting new audiences. You know, I go to Green Biz and I see how you brought together not only chief sustainability officers, but also people from the investor relations communities and others. I think ERM can make a further contribution there by connecting uh, those chief sustainability officers, also helping on the IR side, digging into the traditional environmental health and safety groups and making the social messages or elements of this stronger. So finally, I'd like to ask each of you some, something, and Karen, I'll start with you. What does success look like here? When we talk about this and revisit this in, a, in let's say, a couple of years, what's the story you hope to be able to tell about what this institute has done? Karen? You know, for me, Joel, I think it's that we have had a meaningful contribution to the dialogue and the debate around sustainability, and we have been able to um, make a meaningful contribution to uh, to ways in which clients can really implement um, and address the challenges that they're facing, whether it's around resilience, low carbon economy transition, ESG, but to really help people make material change within their businesses because of the thought leadership, 
the connections, the networks, the stakeholder convening that we've been able to help them be part of. How about you, Mark? Yeah, Joel, I'd hope you'd see evidence that we've been able to both redefine and expand the number of companies that are seen as leaders. You know, you know the GlobeScan Sustainability Survey and Unilever has deservedly, I think, been sitting on the top of that ranking now for the better part of a decade. And Patagonia, Interface, IKEA are also there. I hope that you'll see us help bring a new cohort of companies into that leadership framework. And there'll be names that we weren't familiar with this last decade. It's not that we want any of those established leaders to stop what they're doing. It's that we need so many more companies doing the same thing and actually combining their efforts to drive us forward at the pace that we need. Yes, we absolutely need more usual suspects. Karen James is Group Chief Executive at ERM and Mark Lee is head of ERM's new Sustainability Institute. Thanks to you both. Thanks, Joel. Thanks so much, Joel. The past month has seen the publication of dozens of reports highlighting paths to action for corporate sustainability as the world looks forward to life after the COVID-19 pandemic. This week, the Forum for the Future added to that body of work with its map of the multiple pathways ahead of us, titled From System Shock to System Change, Time to Transform. Its analysis suggests four possible scenarios that will emerge, depending on the actions that we take over the next 6 to 18 months. They include compete and retreat, during which economies will retreat further into nationalistic interests, Discipline, a future world characterized by state control mandated in the name of public health and safety. Transform, a future that is shaped by a growing understanding of the deep connections between human and planetary health. The operative word here is a focus on the regenerative. And unsettled, in which the new normal is shaped by ongoing discontinuity and disruption. I chatted with Forum for the Future CEO Sally Uren about the analysis and wanted to share a few highlights from our conversation. If you're like me, you're hoping for the future described in the transform scenario. So I asked her to describe what that will look like. I also asked her if that future is possible if Donald Trump is reelected for another four years. So within this transform trajectory, the kind of actions we are seeing and need to see more of are investors rapidly divesting from fossil fuel, reallocating capital to sectors of the economy that are part of a sustainable future. Just look at what's happened in renewables over the last few months. It is businesses being clear that their purpose is beyond short-term profit maximization. Their purpose is about rebuilding native assets, rebuilding societal assets, playing a role in dealing with inequality. It's philanthropy, pooling their resources, not going off and doing their own thing, but coming together to form collectives. There's some of those emerging it's more of Kate Rayworth's donor economic model. So different economic models that have been tried in Amsterdam that actually bring environmental value creation and societal value creation into the mix. And it's regenerative agriculture. It's these practices that we've seen on the edge of the agricultural system coming into the main part of the system and being part of a transition of redefining the goals of a system from being quite extractive to actually goals that put more back than they take out. So we see transform already. The million dollar question is, you know, will all of these things mainstream? Um, our report is a, offering a contribution to understand, okay, so how do we mainstream this? And so Trump, we elected, knocks the US government at a state, at a national level out of the equation, but not at a state level at all. Um, the way that your governance is set up, States can do an awful lot, and we've seen that over the last four years. But actually, that transform trajectory is delivered by governments taking bold action. Okay, national, that won't happen, but state level, it certainly can. By businesses taking bold action, by really adopting this pioneering purpose, changing procurement, there's a whole list of things business can continue to do. And it's also investors who are getting really wise to this and understand actually the rate of return from investments of the, into the sectors of the past, fossil fuels in particular, they're not going to deliver into the future. Then you've got philanthropy, then you've got civil society. So government is one of several actors that need to deliver transform. So if Trump gets in, then yes, in America, you're going to experience 
I would think an acceleration of that whole compete and retreat trajectory. So where the mindset is protection of our own, we'll only engage externally outside of our borders if we get something back in return. But in compete and retreat, there are light sides because there's a drive for efficiency, circular economy will really rapidly accelerate. And even with some of the reshoring, you might then get kind of injections into the local economy. And my point is that whatever of these four trajectories you find yourselves in, understanding the mindset that's in that trajectory, so compete and retreat, it's the nationalist mindset, understanding the light in that trajectory and dialing up the light and plotting a pathway from that trajectory to transform and adopting that transform mindset, planetary health equals human health equals social justice equals economic health, then yes, it may slow down progress in the States, but by no means is it game over. The term regenerative is being thrown around quite a bit in sustainability circles. So I asked Uren for her definition of the term, along with examples of companies she thinks are authentically moving toward that model. For me, the difference between sustainability, as we tended to describe it, and regenerative is really an emphasis on the need to reconfigure our systems and an understanding that if we are really going to deliver sustainability, we need to reconfigure the economy, we need to deal with some really deep root of structural social issues. And the word regenerative allows you to have a conversation about the need to reconfigure systems. And that's why we are using it. So for me, it's pushing the ambition around sustainability even further. And it's saying, you know, we have to rewire the economy, rewire society. If we're going to deliver a just transition, we can't just keep building from where we are because we've tried that and we have not yet put in place a solid response to climate, a solid response to social justice. So regenerative is about rewiring our systems so that they begin to self-sustain, they begin to flourish. And it's about ultimately sustainability is the capacity for continuance. At the moment, the systems we have do not have that capacity. There isn't a truly regenerative business out there at the moment. Um, But if I look at the work that Patagonia has been doing with organic cotton farmers in India, helping them transition from conventional cotton production to organic, that's really impressive because that transition from conventional to organic can often take a long time. And actually the economics, the market economics don't work. So through an innovative partnership with the organic cotton accelerator, they've actually shown that it is possible to shift to an organic model, which has got regenerative principles at its heart. Elsewhere in the fashion industry, there are some really interesting initiatives from Burberry has got a a nature-based fund for its um, sheep farmers in Australia, which is based on really helping them kind of adopt regenerative practices. And elsewhere in the apparel industry, there are lots of little experiments. And then we go to food. And I'm really impressed by the work that General Mills is doing around its ambition for you know, a million hectares, I think it is, to become regenerative. Really working with the farmers, working with the frontline production to understand what are the practices that we need and how can it be scaled. And we've had an insight into that region, Ag Pictures, through a project we've actually completed in the US. We're about to move on to the next phase where we brought together different brands, farmers, and there's a huge amount going on, a lot of experimentation. The challenge now is, is to scale it. So I can point to some really good examples and we showcase them in the report. We just now need to make that the norm. Are you feeling optimistic or pessimistic these days? I confess to swinging between both extremes. But let's end on a positive note with Uren's thoughts on what makes her optimistic. What makes me optimistic is the power of individuals and the power of stubborn and gritty optimism and the fact that self-fulfilling and self-defeating prophecies are real. So if we believe that we can create something better, we stand a far greater chance of delivering something better than if we say, actually, it's just too difficult um, And so that mindset, the stories we tell ourselves, the narratives, our values are really important. And most people want something better. 
even if they vote differently from you and I, they want something better. So really unlocking the power of us as humans gives me cause for optimism. Another one of the launches this week came from Project Drawdown, which announced the launch of Drawdown Labs, a consortium of private sector companies working to go beyond net zero to scale climate solutions in the world. And here to talk about that is the director of, of Drawdown Labs, Jamie Alexander. Hey, Jamie. Hi, Joel. It's great to be with you today. So give us the elevator pitch. What is Drawdown Labs? What's the goal? Yeah, um, I mean, I think as you've as you've just highlighted, there are a lot of of corporate sustainability initiatives and climate announcements. Um, no shortage of them, as you and I both know in this space. But I think we, what Project Drawdown brings to this, and the reason we decided to do it, is we, you know, I think sort of the the mystique and the, the power of Project Drawdown really lies in our focus on climate solutions um, and an atmospheric perspective both of which, um, you know, I think there, there's been a lack of in, in, in corporate sustainability, where corporate sustainability, you know, traditionally has focused on, you know, what we call a, a doing less bad approach, um, where, you know, we, re we really focus on reducing the, the amount of emissions that, that we're putting into the atmosphere. Um, but at Project Drawdown, you know, we've, we, we take an atmospheric perspective, which includes not only those sources of emissions, but also, you know, sinks at land and at sea, as well as, you know, the, the social and cultural changes that, that are needed to actually not only achieve, help us achieve drawdown, but actually sustain, you know, drawdown and, 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 a, and a thriving world um, long into the future. And so, so Project Drawdown, you know, decided to do this because we want to kind of change the conversation from one of only focusing on emissions reductions into one that actually, you know, focuses more broadly on how companies can kind of use their, their scale and resources and their employees, importantly, um, you know, to help kind of come at this from a more um, solutions-oriented approach. So for those who haven't been part of the drawdown conversation, it's about actually literally drawing down the uh, greenhouse gas emissions already in the atmosphere as well as uh, finding sinks to enable those to, to be sequestered. Um, so you have a bunch of companies that were part of the announcement, Allbirds, the shoe company, Lime, the uh, ride sharing technology company, Train, which makes uh, TRNE, which makes uh, HVAC equipment, the global design firm, IDEO, Intuit, Google, Impossible Foods. What, what are they actually gonna be doing with you? Right, so we're, you know, we, we kind of see ourselves as a bit of a, of, of a testing ground. Um, and there are two kind of main theories that we're going to be testing. Um, and I think these are these kind of show up in different ways across the corporate climate conversation. One is, you know, change happens when you work with large corporations and really try to, you know, leverage their scale and, and influence. Companies like Google, you know, they have a lot of influence. So let's work with them to try to, you know, get climate solutions into all parts of their business. So that's, that's one set of experiments. And I, I'd say that, you know, Google, Intuit, and Train Technologies fall into that category. A second hypothesis of how change happens in the space is, you know, you work with those disruptive companies that actually embody climate solutions in and of their existence. Like Impossible Foods exists in order to disrupt the meat industry. Right. And so so we're testing those two theories of change where, you know, how can how can Project Drawdown and our and our analysis help Google, for example, you know, enable one billion of their users around climate solutions. So we're going to be mapping, um, you know, Project Drawdown's extensive assessment of climate solutions to all of Google's capacities. And how do we you know, how can we how can we enable um, their, you know, all of their their users and employees around climate solutions? Mm -hmm. And then with, you know, on the Impossible Foods side, um, you know, how can we support a company like Impossible Foods really take on, um, take on the meat industry and look at, you know, all of the, the policy changes that are needed around methane um, to really, you know, enable a company, you know, the, all of the companies that are, that are working to, um, to develop plant-based plant proteins 
um, to really kind of, you know, disrupt um, the, the incumbent and, and move all of those workers, you know, out, out, of, out of the slaughterhouses and into, you know, the laboratories of, of plant-based beef. So a few minutes ago, you, you really put an emphasis on employees. Uh, and talk a little about that. What's the role? How do you plan to engage employees in these companies? Yeah, I mean, I said, this is one of the things that I that I'm most excited about, actually. Um, so I think, you know, when we when we think about emissions reductions, when when that when when reducing emissions is the sole goal of corporate sustainability, you know, it's insufficient to the scale of the problem. And it's also narrowing in terms of who gets to work on it. You know, I, let, let's take net zero by 2050. If that, that kind of target is only sufficient to the scale of the crisis, if every single company on earth sets and achieves that target, right? That's net zero by 2050 was intended to be a global, a global target. Um, the fact that individual companies have adopted that as climate leadership, yeah, is, is only sufficient if every company achieves it. So, so I think, you know, on, for, so one of our, you know, one of our goals is for net zero by 2050 to be the ceiling or to, to be the floor, not the ceiling. Um, and also for, for us to expand, you know, corporate climate goals beyond emissions reductions targets. Um, because when, when we do that, it's, it tends to narrow the focus on, you know, the biggest sources of a company's emissions, which means that, you know, companies primarily will focus on renewable energy, energy efficiency, or transportation. And that means that only a few people with that specific skill set get to work on that problem. But there are, you know, there are thousands of people throughout, you know, throughout companies who want to be able to bring their, their skill sets to bear for this crisis. And if they don't have, you know, expertise in, in data centers or renewable energy policy, um, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to contribute. And so, you know, again, mapping project drawdowns, you know, climate solutions enables a lot more people to come into the conversation. And so we're, we're going to be working um, with these companies on, you know, extensive kind of employee engagement tools and mechanisms and storytelling to be able to bring more people in, expand, you know, what's possible and the skill sets that, that can be brought to this work. Cool. Before I let you go, you may be able to solve a challenge that we've been having here at GreenBiz. And I see from the world of uh, climate journalism, others are too. When you go past net zero, in other words, when you sequester more carbon than you emit, are you climate positive or climate negative or carbon negative? Or how do you refer to those companies at Project Drawdown? That's a great question. We haven't necessarily um, endorsed any one of those many phrases. Oh, darn. Um, I think <laughs> I think our our language is more in terms of again what what the atmosphere feels. So building a you know a thriving planet for you know for all people where you know where all people and living things can thrive um, is is probably more the parlance that that we would use. All right. Well, nice skating the answer on that. That may be one of those projects that you need to take on at the new Drawdown Labs, uh, part of Project Drawdown, launched this week. Jamie Alexander is the director of Drawdown Labs. Thanks so much, Jamie. Thanks, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. While you're there, check out our six, count them, six free e-newsletters. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. We love your comments, questions, and tips. Our email address is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week for yet another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by IHG Hotels and Resorts home to some of the world's most well-loved hotel brands in more than 100 countries. Its commitment to protect the planet and care for communities comes naturally to a business that stands for providing true hospitality for everyone. Visit ihgplc.com for more information.